Welcome back to NL Newsday. Jeff Andreas here with you. Hope everyone had a lovely weekend and is having a lovely Monday afternoon. Of course, being that it is the first day of the work week, pleased to welcome to the show now Acumen Laws, Kyla Lee. Kyla, how are you doing today? I'm great, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for the time. Appreciate this as always. Now, I want to start with the issue here of being found not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. And this is uh, coming up in relation to a couple of recent cases here. Uh, The case of a a Fredericton man, Matthew Raymond, who shot four people, including two police officers, uh, while in the grip of delusions about demons and the apocalypse. He has been found not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder. Uh, The jury delivering that verdict last week following a nine-week trial. And there's also the ongoing murder trial of Alec Manassian, who admitted to driving a van down a busy Toronto sidewalk, killing 10 in injuring 16 more, and he has asked a judge to find him not criminally responsible for his actions as well. So in relation to this topic, Kyla, I guess I'll just kind of start with the overarching question here is, is this a really complicated defense to try to put together? It is complex. Um, It's very rarely used in Canada. About 1% of criminal cases involve uh, an argument about a person being not criminally responsible. Um, And it's complicated by the fact that it requires the defense to get psychiatric evidence and put that before the court um, to raise the issue. Um, And the Crown then has the opportunity to respond with their own psychiatric evidence and their own evaluations to question whether or not the person is truly not criminally responsible for their actions. That sounds like it would be a very lengthy process then, right? For you to have your defense come forward with its psychiatric analysis and then the Crown to have to go forward with another one. I mean, this sounds like something that would take weeks, if not months, to really put together. To put together the the defense, it does take a long period of time, and it can also take a long time, especially as we're seeing with the Manassian trial, um, for the evidence to come out in court. Because not only do do um, people often have the psychiatrist testify, but there's also members of a person's family to talk about the way that they ordinarily behave, people that know them well to talk about you know when there may have been a deviation from the norm, what may have triggered it. All of that foundation has to put, be put before the court, and then there's cross-examination on it. Why do you think it's so few and far between where these types of defenses are even you know, brought forward? You mentioned less than 1%. It seems like you know, whenever we're talking about serious, um, violent crimes, that there's always this possibility right, that someone's mental state may be uh, at the forefront of why these actions might be committed. So why do you think it's just so rare for, for uh, I guess, these defenses to even be put forward as a possibility, let alone actually you know, getting the end result? There are lots of reasons why it's incredibly rare. Uh, One relates to the difficulty actually gathering the evidence and establishing the defense in court. But it's also an incredible burden on a person who is found not criminally responsible by reason of a mental disorder um, once they're found not criminally responsible. Because there's a myth that um, people who are found not responsible for that reason are just let back loose into society. But the ultimate result is that they're admitted then into a provincially run psychiatric facility where they're assessed. They're under the jurisdiction of the Mental Health Review Board in that province or territory, and they're continually assessed and and kept in custody for an indeterminate period of time until their mental health or their mental condition is in such a position through treatment that they no longer pose a risk to the public. 
And so there is a very lengthy process that they go through. And for some people who are found not guilty of these crimes, they end up incarcerated in these mental health facilities for the rest of their lives. A very good example um, coming from near Kamloops is the Alan Schoenborn case uh, out of Merritt. Um, he, since those those actions, has been in the custody of the Mental Health Review Board in, in British Columbia and is not likely to be released. I imagine, though, and, and I, I guess, you know, from your experience as a lawyer, maybe you, have, you probably haven't dealt with something of this nature, but, I mean, these are really, really difficult um, rulings for, for those who have been impacted by these actions, right? When, when you're talking about loved ones, uh, you know, maybe someone lost a, a child or a parent or, or someone really, really close to them in these types of situations, and they never really truly feel like they're getting justice when someone is, is basically getting, um, I don't want to say off the hook, because obviously we're talking about mental issues and they're going to be dealt with appropriately, but at the same point in time, it never truly feels like, like justice is being served. No, especially because of the language, I think, that's used around this, that a person is, is not criminally responsible. Of what you hear is not responsible, that they're not responsible for their actions. And on paper, that's true. Um, but as somebody who's, you know, attended court proceedings and, and who's been invested in them, you know, for you to hear that your, your family member's life was lost because of the actions of another person that they're not responsible for, it, it can be an incredibly devastating ruling that can make you feel like things are never going to be set right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then especially in cases where, where someone does, you know, kind of go through the, the rigors of being treated and then is able to be deemed that they're fit to re-enter society uh, at that point, too. It, it does kind of add another layer to this as well, that, uh, you know, at least if they're spending all their time in that mentally uh, provincially run facility, then, you know, maybe it feels like at least they're getting some um, some punishment, if you will. And again, I, that's not the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. But at, when they are let out, I mean, that's an extra kind of kick in the teeth for, for someone who has been impacted by these types of actions. So uh, it's an interesting conversation, and, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the Alec Manassian case here uh, as well moving forward. Um, I did want to switch topics a little bit here, Kyla. Uh, you had a, a recent YouTube video that you posted in the last couple of days here. Um, I believe it was in relation to some questions coming into the uh, Driving Law pod as well. If people haven't heard that, it's interesting stuff. Check it out. But um, if if someone runs a red light because there was a large tr- behind them. So obviously there's probably a danger that this truck is going to rear end them. Is there a defense for running that red light? Potentially. Um, essentially, the defense that you would have in that circumstance is a defense of necessity, that the action that you committed running the red light was less serious than the action that you were avoiding the accident and being rear-ended by the truck, that there was imminent peril to your life, and you had no other reasonable legal alternatives to the illegal action that you took. How challenging is that? I mean, I guess you, you would hope that there would be like a red light camera or something that would be able to capture that. But outside of, of having some photographic evidence or maybe some dash cam videos or something along those lines, this has got to be something that would be really, really difficult to ever prove in court. It is a very difficult um, defense to prove because, again, it's an affirmative defense. It requires the defendant to testify, to lay the evidentiary foundation and raise a reasonable doubt through that evidence that they were not guilty because of the necessity of their actions. Um, And in traffic court especially, if you can't get the officer to agree that there was the big truck there that did pose a risk to you, then it becomes a question of credibility. Does the judicial justice sitting in the 
trial believe the officer that there was no truck or do they believe you? And then if they believe you, have you raised sufficient evidence to, to raise a doubt that your actions were voluntary as opposed to contributed to by the necessity? Have you had, uh, you know, much, much luck when trying to defend these types of cases in court yourself? So far, I'm thankful I haven't had to uh, make a necessity defense out in court, but the day will come. (laughs) The day will come, and we'll we'll talk about it when that day does come. Um, All right, uh, one more topic here for you, Kyla, and then I'll I'll let you go here. But uh, COVID restrictions, I think we've kind of talked about it here. It feels like pretty much every Monday for the last six months, but uh, we continue to see them either extended or, or, um, you know, affecting more areas of the province or being heightened a little bit. So we didn't see any, like, new COVID restrictions come in since the last time we spoke, but they are no longer just in the mainland and in the Fraser Valley. They are now province-wide. But uh, just from your experience, so it's been, what, a little over three weeks now? I guess, right, since um, Dr. Bonnie Henry did put those restrictions in place on on Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health. Are you starting to see differences in, in people's behaviors? I know we're starting to see numbers come down a little bit, and I'll say that with a, a lot of emphasis, a very minute amount. We are starting to see numbers come down, it feels like. We'll find out, I guess, more later on this afternoon. But uh, are you starting to see people's behaviors change as a result of the restrictions being put in place? Uh, I would also emphasize a little bit. Um, there are lots of examples. I was scrolling through my Instagram this weekend and seeing people leaving their communities where I know they live and going to ski hills out of town. They're still doing things that they're not supposed to be doing. But there are also examples of people who are staying at home, who are following the guidelines. I have noticed more uh, wearing of masks. I went out to dinner Friday night and um, almost everybody was following they wear masks when moving around the restaurant requirement. So uh, there is some change, but I think like any change, it's going to be slow before we actually see widespread adopting of the new requirements. Um, and I guess I'll ask a little bit about the the mask mandate too. I don't I don't uh, from my knowledge I don't think there's any necessarily fines attached to it at least at this stage of the game for people caught not wearing one. I know you know Dr. Henry's been very very hesitant to put a mandate in place, saying that uh, if I just encourage people to do it, they are more likely to uh, you know follow up on those rules. I know I feel the same way. I don't really like being told what to do. I can be told what the best advice is, and I would be more likely to follow it than um, you know my attitude would probably be a little bit less desirable. If, uh, if I'm just being told what to do. But I imagine a mask mandate is going to have a significant difference. Um, you know, now that it's out there, people are more likely to wear them, I would hope, as opposed to just being advised it's a good idea. Uh, you said you're starting to see some some change here moving forward. More and more people are, are complying to that order. Do you think that uh, that's pretty much the extent of it, where it needs to go? Because if we start to see, you know, fines and penalties added on, um, you, you know, we've talked how ineffective fines and penalties are. So I imagine where things are standing right now with this mass mandate is probably something you you support as it stands right now. I think so. I think this is the right balance um, to strike with the people who were were clamoring for the mask mandate um, and we're not going to let that issue go. If you, you and I probably both watch all the briefings and so you know every time there was a question, why are we not mandating masks on social media? Why are we not mandating masks? As a, as a journalist, you probably get asked about the mask mandate mm-hmm. in the course of your work. Um, so it's a good balance because it satisfies that very vocal group that wants the mask mandate while also not imposing penalties for people who say, I can't wear a mask. And as Dr. Bonnie Henry has said, we're going to take those people at their word. 
Kyla, as always, appreciate the time. Thank you so much for doing this, and uh, hopefully we, uh, we'll catch up again next week. Thank you for having me.